tool ever devised for understanding how the world works. Science is a very human form of knowledge. We are always at the brink of the node. Science is a collaborative enterprise spanning the generations. We remember those who prepared the way, seeing through them also. Good morning, afternoon and evening, everybody that's listening. Welcome to the 11th edition of Bears with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. My name is Sanjoy Som. I'm a research scientist with the Institute. This podcast highlights the thoughts, sciences and philosophies of members of our Institute. And today we have the great pleasure of welcoming one of our own, Dr. Aaron Goldman. Aaron's talk today is called Compositional Origin Theories, Pre-Socratic and Post-Miller. His handout for the presentation can be found on our website at bmsis.org slash podcast. But first, I will give it out to Dr. Sean Domagel-Goldman, who will introduce this month's beverage. Welcome, Sean. Thank you, Sanjoy. Uh, this month's beverage is called Bitter American. It is a saisonale, I'm sorry, session ale that is uh, made by the 21st Amendment Brewery right here in Washington, D.C., uh, I'm choosing it this month for a couple reasons. One, we are in the middle of election season, and so uh, for people of all persuasions, Better American can be appropriate this time of year. Uh, and also, it's got a space monkey on the can, and it tastes really good. Um, so I love it. Uh, our speaker is not a very Better American. He's actually a pretty cool American. Uh, Aaron Goldman, no relation to myself, despite the, uh, the namesakeness between the two of us. Uh, Aaron has his background in computational biology and bioinformatics uh, and he got a P and that was I believe what he studied in undergraduate and through his PhD he got his PhD in microbiology from the University of Washington which is where many of us met him uh, he's also taught high school biology physics and mathematics at the Princeton Science Academy uh, and he's also a passionate and, and semi-professional musician. Uh, he's been featured on many independent radio stations, and I hear he's a real big thing in Japan. Um, <laughs> Aaron right now is uh, a NASA postdoctoral fellow with, uh, with the Georgia Tech NASA Astrobiology Institute team, but he's doing his research in Laura Landweber's lab at Princeton University. Uh, and I, this is the point where I stop talking so you can hear the wonderful things he has to say in his talk today. Take it away, Aaron. Well, thank you, Sean, and uh, thank you, Blue Marble Space and Sanjoy Jacob, for inviting me to give this talk. I went over a few other Blue Marble Space Institute of Science uh, podcasts before coming up with this idea for the talk today, and I hope that it's in keeping with the creative subject matter of the previous talk. So, what I'm going to do today is I'm going to discuss what I think is the first known theory of the origin of life, or at least in the Western, uh, the history of Western thought. And then I'm going to try to draw some links between the first origin of life theory and modern theories of a category that I'm referring to as compositional because they rely on the composition of a system rather than some sort of genetic system to replicate. And first I should lay the groundwork because this ancient origin of life hypothesis falls into the category of pre-Socratic philosophy. And before I start, just a caveat that I'm really a novice when it comes to philosophy and even more of a novice when it comes to the history of philosophy. Uh, so I'm going to do my best here and I hope it can be more of a discussion 
than a lecture, really. So the meaning of pre-Socratic philosophy, the term is pretty obvious. It's before Socrates. Philosophy as we would recognize it uh, didn't begin with Socrates and did not originate in Athens. The first philosophers uh, on the timeline on your handout were actually from the Anatolian town of Miletus, which is on the coast of modern-day Turkey. And pre-Socratic philosophy is not defined necessarily chronologically, but rather intellectually. So philosophers that fall into pre-Socratic class of philosophers would just have not heard of Socrates, but still be part of the Western canon. For example, on your timeline, Democritus is considered a pre-Socratic philosopher. Now, he's actually contemporary with Socrates, but Socrates never wrote anything down. So if you were a contemporary of Socrates and you lived somewhere else, chances were you weren't really aware of his philosophy. Uh, Democritus is well known as a founder of the atomic or atomist school of philosophy, which seems to be the most accurate of the ancient cosmologies. But that's, that's an aside. So pre-Socratic philosophy is defined as being before Socrates, and the reason why Socrates is such a transitional figure is because he was the teacher of Plato, who then went along to teach Aristotle. Plato actually wrote the first surviving books of Western philosophy, or at least the first books of Western philosophy that survive today, and was probably one of the most influential philosophers in ancient Roman philosophy. Aristotle, who was taught by Plato, is probably one of the most influential philosophers of all time. He founded many of the schools of philosophy, um, the categories of philosophy that we consider part of modern philosophy today. And if you asked a medieval scholar, or if, if you referred to the philosopher, to a medieval scholar, they would know immediately that you were talking about Aristotle. So Socrates is a transitional figure because he taught one very important foundational figure in Western philosophy, who then taught another. And as I mentioned, Plato has what I think are the, are the oldest surviving books of philosophy. The oldest surviving ancient Greek books are actually, they actually belong to Herodotus, the historian. Whether you consider him a philosopher or not is kind of a matter of taste. But Plato is clearly a philosopher, and we have complete works of his, lots of them actually. I beg pardon, when you say the oldest books of philosophy, <clears throat> you mean the oldest books of Greek philosophy? Western, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't mean uh, Eastern philosophy. Because I, if I'm remembering the little bit I know of Middle Eastern history, there's some stuff in you know, Sumeria, ancient Egypt, that goes back another thousand years. Oh, really? Well, that should... So I guess, I guess the timeline then begins with ancient Greece as part of a um, continuous Western philosophy. Because a lot of the philosophers on this timeline were technically from Egypt or parts of the world that we would consider the Middle East, but they were Hellenized. And so I'm assuming a thousand years ago, uh, the Mycenaeans hadn't happened yet. And so these, this, these philosophers weren't Hellenized philosophers. There, there are certainly philosophers in the, what we wouldn't consider part of the Western tradition that predate these philosophers. So the pre-Socratic philosophers of ancient Greece and Hellenized Mediterranean, uh, other Hellenized Mediterranean areas 
their philosophy survives in what are called fragments. So fragments aren't literally scraps of paper that have survived, but rather quotations of text that they had written that is embedded within surviving works. So a later philosopher who had access to the complete works of these pre-Socratic philosophers may put a block quote in a book that now that survives today, and this would count as a fragment of the work of the previous pre-Socratic philosopher. And so because of this, we don't really have complete arguments for most of the pre-Socratic philosophers. Um, we get fragments here and there, and we have to make the best of what we have. Socrates also is important because claims that had no certainty behind them, he wasn't really interested in. And so, as you'll see, the pre-Socratic philosophers uh, were prone to create elaborate cosmologies, and often their arguments for these cosmologies haven't survived. And that's the sort of thing that Socrates and later Aristotle weren't very interested in. Plato did create an elaborate cosmology with regard to his forms, which were idyllic uh, objects from which the objects that we see today are drawn. But I think this is more of a departure from a Socratic method of questioning assumptions rather than the pre-Socratic method of creating, of creating cosmologies out of logic. Now, this is the part where I'm... Uh, I have to admit I'm a novice, and this is something I've noticed in my small amount of dealings with pre-Socratic philosophy and the transition into Socratic philosophy, and I don't know how many, how many actual classicists would agree with that statement, but it seems that pre-Socratic philosophers were much more prone to create elaborate sorts of cosmologies, one of which I'll describe in detail later. I also want to touch briefly on the ancient Greek concept of life. So, Discussions of what life fundamentally is, those show up in Democritus and Aristotle and I think Plato, and usually they are equated with a concept of soukos, which is usually translated as soul. The Greek word soukos is where we get the root um, or the term psyche from. Uh, the translation of soul is a little bit troublesome because it's weighed down by Judeo-Christian meaning of the word soul. The Greeks didn't really mean necessarily a soul in the same way that the Christians meant soul, but rather soukos is more like an animating force that inhabits an object. And so my soukos allows me to move around and also to act in a way that is in accordance with my overall sort of goals as a life form or teleology. And Aristotle thought that the human soukos, the teleology of the human soukos, was actually to become a philosopher. And, you know, I think what he meant by philosopher is actually what we all do, which is try to understand the world around us and try to figure out how to live better. Anyway, there are two terms that ancient Greeks used to talk about life. One is bios, which is obviously where we get the term or the, the prefix bio from, and that's used to describe all life. And the second is zoon, which is where we get the prefix zoo, or even the word zoo, from. And that's used to describe animal life, or in other words, life that moves. Okay, so now I want to launch into a discussion of 
the Zoogony of Empedocles. So Empedocles was a pre-Socratic philosopher. If you look at the timeline here, let's see, where is he? He is about, well, he was born in 490 BC. The timeline shows him um, at about that time as well. He was a contemporary of Zeno, who is famous for Zeno's paradox. And he was one of these philosophers who had a very elaborate cosmology. Part of his cosmology that had probably the most notable effect on our understanding of ancient philosophy and our culture today is that he was the first to introduce the concept of the four elements, earth, air, fire, and water. He didn't call these elements, he called them roots. So these are the roots of all substance. Uh, he also named the elements earth, air, fire, and water after gods that represent them, but I'm going to use those terms, earth, air, fire, and water. Along with these elements, his cosmology included two forces that act on them, love and strife. Now, these he imagined as fundamental forces that actually act on objects in the same way we consider gravity to act on objects. We see love and strife, to Empedocles, we see love and strife as human emotions because at a human scale and at a human time scale, emotions are the easiest manifestation of love and strife to see. But he thought love and strife were actually two fundamental forces that brought things together and repelled things away from each other, respectively. He also has a cosmogony, the origin of the cosmos, in which the universe began as a perfect sphere. Uh, the elements existed in a, a pure form within the sphere, in which they were neither mixed or separated. And it's not actually clear to me how something could be neither mixed or separated, but possibly he would explain that as me living in a non-pure uh, cosmos. And so I can't possibly understand what it means to not be mixed or separated. What about something like a colloidal solution? Yeah. Uh, Oil and water. Could Hold that thought. <laughs> that will come up later. Possibly, yeah, they are intertwined perfectly in perfect amounts, but not mixed together. They didn't really understand that there were different types of mixture. And, of course, they didn't understand chemical properties that go along with those mixtures either. But that is a good, I think that's a good explanation. Something kind of like a, a colloidal solution that doesn't fall out of, um, or that doesn't precipitate because love is holding it together. So I guess you could imagine it that way. So love is uniting these elements within the sphere. And on the outside of the sphere, strife exists and sort of guards the sphere and repels stuff from outside of the universe, outside of the cosmos, from getting into this perfect sphere. So that's, that's, uh, that's his um, cosmological origin, or at least starting point. And at some point, strife becomes more influential and starts to work its way into the cosmos, which causes the elements to separate and change, began to take place within the universe. And Empedocles uses this change and the um, ensuing non-equal interactions between strife and love to explain the features of the cosmos that we can observe. The stars, the landforms on the Earth, the Earth itself, the separation between the atmosphere and the earth, and he also uses it to explain 
the origin of life. And I don't know if I mentioned this, but I think this is the first origin of life hypothesis in the Western tradition. I should also warn you that it is incredibly weird. And I'm going to give it to you in the fragments that survive. So we have about 500 lines that survive from Empedocles total, most of which are from a book called On Nature, where he describes this cosmology and also his origin of life. I should also mention that he was the last philosopher to do his work, uh, or the last ancient Greek philosopher to do his work in poetry. So before that, there were, there were two other poet philosophers who wrote in hexameter, and he was the last. So if you want to impress people, I guess, write your next paper in hexameter poetry. Anyway, so here's one fragment that begins to explain how life first started to originate, and it comes from Simplicius. And kindly earth received its broad melting pots, two parts of the glitter of water out of eight, and four of fire, and they became white bones, marvelously joined by the gluing of love. Okay, so, so he has bones forming out of water, earth, and fire. Okay, another fragment by Aristotle says, Here sprang up many faces without necks, arms wandered without shoulders, unattached, and eyes strayed alone in need of foreheads. So these bones are coming together to form organs and parts of animals, but these are disembodied parts that are just wandering around. This is where I think it's kind of weird and horrific. And then finally, another fragment explains where organisms come from. But as one divine element mingled further with another, these things fell together as each chance to meet other, and many other things besides these were constantly resulting. With rolling gait and countless hands, many creatures were born with faces and breasts on one side, man-faced ox progeny, while others again sprang forth as ox-headed offspring of man, creatures compounded partly of male, partly of the nature of female, and fitted with shadowy parts. Okay, so let me unpack that a little bit. Essentially, the zoogony of Empedocles holds that the elements came together to form, among, among other things, those parts of animals that we would recognize today, as well as other parts that didn't quite make it into animals. These came together to form larger, more complex parts, and then finally these more complex organs and other parts started to come together seemingly at random because they were wandering around, and only when the proper combination of those parts came together, a viable combination, were they able to reproduce as living organisms that we would notice today, as that we would observe today. In other cases, mismatched parts would join together, like, for example, the man-faced ox progeny, and those would not be viable organisms. So that's that's Empedocles' origin of life hypothesis. Now, you might expect that there were lots of other origin of life hypotheses between then and now. Remember, this is a pre-Socratic philosopher. But around the time of Aristotle, the concept of spontaneous generation came along. So spontaneous generation, if you are unfamiliar with the concept, is the idea that life can spontaneously arise from either non-life or dead living material from a different organism. 
So a classic example would be mold arising by the combination of rot and uh, moisture on its surface. Fleas can arise from inorganic dust particles. And maggots can arise from rotting flesh. So this was first formalized by Aristotle and not proven incorrect until Louis Pasteur in the 19th century. Louis Pasteur's disproof was actually very elegant. What he did was he took, he took meat broth, which was thought of as very conducive to spontaneous generation, and he boiled it to kill everything that lived in it. And he, well, he put it in a flask first, a glass bulb that had a long curved neck, kind of like a gooseneck, and when the neck was turned downwards, it would present, prevent falling particles from reaching the broth while still allowing the, the free flow of air into the broth. And he boiled the broth within this flask with the neck facing downwards and waited for a really long time, an extended period of, period of time, and nothing grew within it. Then he turned the flask 180 degrees, so now the neck was pointing upwards and particles were now allowed to fall into the flask. And very rapidly, the, the, the broth became clouded and organisms started to grow within it. And so people generally give him credit for taking, finally taking down the concept of spontaneous generation. But if spontaneous generation is, and as it was for about 2,000 years, the dominant concept of where life comes from in biology, then you don't need a complicated origin of life hypothesis because it should be happening all the time. In fact, the origin of life becomes a major problem. It's why your food rots and that sort of thing. So that means that for most of Western history, the origin of life wasn't really a problem. It, wasn't a, it was not a scientific problem. Now, this I have to give credit to Antonio Lascano. He's the one who pointed this out to me. A year ago, I used to start my grant applications with something like, the origin of life is the oldest unsolved scientific problem known to man. It really, between Empedocles and Louis Pasteur, it really hadn't been a problem. And it's only after spontaneous generation is disproven that the origin of life as a field becomes an important research subject. So the first origin of life model since the disproof of spontaneous generation was what John Haldane called the primordial soup. Now, I'm sure we're all familiar with this term. It's still used today as a sort of hand-wavy term for we don't know what kind of chemistry is going on. But as a formal hypothesis for the origin of life, it was proposed somewhat simultaneously by Alexander Oparin and John Haldane. Oparin proposed it first in 1924, but Haldane's theory was, was published in 1929 before Oparin's book was translated to English. So presumably, Haldane came up with the same idea before he knew that Oparin had. And I'll give you Oparin's version of the pre-primordial soup concept, but just know that Haldane's isn't that dissimilar. It, it, it adds membranes to the concept, but aside from that, it's pretty much the same. The idea is that compounds could have undergone reactions combining into more and more complex molecules, that these molecules would randomly aggregate into what he called coacervates, and that coacervates represented different combinations of organic molecules. And by chance, 
viable combinations of organic compounds would form coacervates, and these coacervates would be able to replicate and essentially become life if you had the right combination. And so I think that kind of sounds familiar. Sounds sounds like a to me like a molecular version of Empedocles' zoogony. Now, there are a couple problems with the primordial soup concept. The one one was um, I think pointed out by Hoyle that there are so many possible combinations of organic molecules that to get something like a cell out of these combinations is virtually impossible. Ends up ticking longer than the life of the universe for it to happen once. But I think it still survives today in some of the models that we refer to as so-called metabolism-first models, which is, which is another form of a compositional origin hypothesis. And so Robert Shapiro had by far the most elaborate metabolism-first model. Instead of simply aggregating organic molecules, the system had to be composed of the right combinations of reactions and energy in order to be viable. And so uh, you might notice these numbers here. This is from a Scientific American article. One is the source of energy, which in this case, he chooses a mineral source of energy, so some sort of mineral catalyst. Two is the release, the release of that energy has to be capable of driving a chemical reaction and three, networks of these chemical reactions must form an increase in complexity to permit adaptation and evolution. Four, the network of reactions must draw material into itself faster than it loses material and compartments must be reproduced as well. And five, no information storing molecule is required. Heredity is stored in the identity and concentration of the compounds in the network. So, these are three types of compositional origin of life hypotheses. One's very different than the others, the other two that are both molecular in scale. But I think that they share a lot in common in that they require an increase in complexity that is explained by some sort of aggregating force. They require that the right combination of things come together at random as other incorrect combinations are coming together at random. And then finally, that the right combination of things leads to a viable organism that at some point will produce the organisms that uh, we observe today and would recognize as normal life forms. Uh, there are also some major differences, and I think those differences come about in what I would consider to be what is clear about the hypothesis and what is not clear about the hypothesis. Empedocles' zoogony hypothesis, it's not clear how these parts come together. So it's not, I don't, it's hard to understand from a modern perspective, of course, how eyeballs would come in contact to, with, with a forehead and a mouth and produce something like a working face. But what is clear in his model is how once you have these things come together in the right way, that they produce organisms that we see today. Because if you have an ox-faced man body, it won't reproduce because it's not the correct combination. But if you have a human-faced human body, it will reproduce. And, of course, we see human-faced human bodies everywhere we go. In fact, we all are one of those. The um, primordial soup and metabolism-first models 
it's clear on how those contents can come together. In fact, the ability of them to come together, at least Alexander Oparin, um, what he did show was that these things do come together into COA surveys. What is not clear to me, at least, is how once they come together, they can turn into organisms that we observe today because they ignore that it's a giant leap from the right organic molecules coming together or the right set of reactions coming together to then get a genetic system, to then get a cell like we know it today. So when I first decided to talk about this, it was more that I wanted to show the similarity because I thought it was interesting. And I guess I'll maybe try to start a conversation here and say that the Empedocles zoogony model is so strange that we easily reject it outright. Is that cause for skepticism about other compositional origins models? Are these similarly difficult to understand, but dressed up in the modern language of chemistry and uh, reaction kinetics? Or is there something fundamentally different about looking at these things at a molecular scale rather than at a macroscopic scale? And so with that, I'm going to end, and thanks for your attention, and um, I'd love to continue a discussion afterwards. Thank you so much, Aaron. Uh, this is very thought-provoking. Uh, the floor is open. Does anybody have any questions? So I guess I'll start. Uh, Aaron, most of the, the, these Greek philosophers have more of a hardware-based origin of life theories, like stuff needs to be put together for the origin of life to happen. Mm -hmm. But in, uh, in Sarah Walker's recent paper, she was focusing a lot on the software as yeah. well as the information. Um, yeah. was, was information part of the Greek philosophers' philosophies? No. Well, so in the sense that the right combination of things is a form of information, yes. But that's, that's difficult because the sort of complex concepts of information that Sarah Walker deals with in her paper, those weren't around very recently. And so there is a sort of compositional information in a man-faced man body versus a box-faced man body. And in that same respect, I think the other compositional origin of life hypotheses, the primordial soup hypothesis and the metabolism first hypothesis of Shapiro, have a similar form of information. And Shapiro's model actually claims that the sort of hardware is able to evolve in a way because, uh, well, actually, so that the hardware is able to evolve in a way because the composition change over time. Now, by far, Shapiro's model is the most information rich because not only do you have hardware, but you have the pieces are connected to each other in the form of reactions. And so you don't just have pieces like in Empedocles' hypothesis or in the prebiotic soup, primordial soup hypothesis, you have between those pieces. So I think his is the most viable of the hypotheses. Aaron, I have a question for you. This is, this is Sean, your, a.k.a. namesake. <laughs> I want to turn your question around and toss it back at you. So the question that you threw out for discussion was, is it possible that you know maybe the scientists a thousand years from now will look on our compositional theories of the origin of life as being as silly as we look upon ancient philosophers' compositional 
theories. And I guess my question is, because you, and you're getting at, is it, <clears throat> I think it's a, a bit of a leading question, which is, yeah, Absolutely. is the compositional framework just a bad place to start? And I guess I would turn it around and, and I would say, you know, what other frameworks would you propose? And would those frameworks look as silly if they didn't have the advantage of modern science and, and the Greeks were using them with their, uh, you know, more limited understanding of, of the, the world in which they lived? Yeah, I guess my answer to that is that, in my opinion, in order to get the first thing that I would call life, you can't exclude one thing or the other, right? So you need some kind of, um, you need something like what's going on in the Shapiro model to produce the complex chemistry. But in order, and and but that sort of thing happens all the time in systems that we don't consider to be alive. I think that serpentinization, aside from the existence of membranes down there, I think serpentinization fits with a lot of people's concepts of a sort of metabolism first origin of life. What you need is not a genetic system or a system of reactions, but a self-supporting system of both at the same time. The origin of life was not one thing. And so you really need, it, it, it's the uh, aggregation actually of uh, information in the form of a genetic system that is continuous evolutionarily continuous with ours today as well as the chemical the, the background of geochemistry and just regular old organic chemistry that allows the genetic system to exist in the first place now the second half of your question had to do with what the ancient greeks would have thought of that yeah, or what? What would the ancient? I mean, is there an ancient Greek version of that? Well, and would, or, or or more to the point, would an ancient Greek version of that approach be as preposterous as as you know? Would it seem as preposterous to us as the one they took? Yeah. So, um, if you look on your timeline, those philosophers that are in light purple are called the pluralists, and that's because uh, other. Other cosmological systems created by philosophers um, around the same time, they portrayed the foundation of the cosmos as one thing manifested in a bunch of different ways. It could be, say, the force of change from perfection to imperfection, for example. And the pluralist said, wait a second, we know that the universe has to be made of more than one thing because we wouldn't be able to observe it otherwise. I don't know exactly what the argument was, but they proposed that what makes the cosmos is the action of more than one thing. In the same way, that's uh, what I'm essentially saying about what I would consider to be a viable origin of life model is one that incorporates both the chemistry, what some people refer to as metabolism, and a sort of genetic system that is a clear precursor of ours. So the answer is that, that there was, a, you know, a comparable origin yeah. of life approach, and it wasn't as zany. It was an origin of life approach, though. It was just a cosmolo cosmological approach. Okay. Yeah. Um, but the spirit is kind of the same. And, and certainly less out there. <laughs> I might not be doing pluralism justice. I've got another one for you, Aaron. Uh, it, it's also in, in the um, the realm of sort of uh, turning your your, your question uh, back back on you. You sort of um, 
highlighted this uh, Empedocles' zoogeny as being this sort of, you know, weird thing that is obviously, you know, ridiculous and, and not worth considering. But not that's not what, exactly what you said, but <laughs> that it's sort of we, we, we see it as this sort of, you know, weird amalgamation of something sort of ancient and freaky. Um, but and again, couple this with my extremely limited understanding of, of uh, the field that, that you work in. But the way I've been understanding how, what is described to me as lateral gene transfer, the, the bush of, of life, if you will, at the base of the tree, has elements of just this zoogeny, right? You've got these functions that are you know, the microbes, I, they're sort of, they're, they're slutty, right? You, you can get pieces of this and that, and you wind up with these weird amalgamations like obligate anaerobes that can still fix nitrogen, and they turn them on and off, and you have all this junk DNA, which is thought to be sort of little bits and pieces of aggregated that may or may not be, be be used. So, I mean, in some level, do you see this, does this zoogeny um, reflect modern microbiological thinking? I know that's a little bit after the origin, but... Yeah, yeah, that's actually a really interesting point because I was thinking this morning about endosymbiosis theory, which is now, you know, pretty much proven to be correct that the mitochondrion comes from the engulfing of a bacterium which then created a symbiotic relationship with the larger host cell in the internal bacterium and and, and now is in every eukaryotic cell except for a few like Giardia. And so that would be another sort of example of things coming together again after the origin of life. But yeah, in, with horizontal gene transfer, it's not so much disembodied parts that are getting incorporated as an organism aggregates. But I do take your point that there's plenty of swapping of parts between living organisms going on in modern life today. So I think that's a really, that's definitely a very interesting parallel that you draw. But I, think it's just it's it's, I think it's just a coincidence, right? You have all these philosophers coming up, all sorts of crazy random nonsense, and some of it just happens to correspond to stuff that actually may be real. Sure. They didn't actually know any biology. No, in fact, the cutting edge of biology at the time was anatomy. And so he's using anatomy to talk about the origin of life. And, and the the cutting edge of chemistry at the time of the primordial soup, well, a little bit, it wasn't quite the cutting edge. But the firm understanding that we had was of organic chemistry. And then you get the primordial soup. So I, I wonder whether, you know, the cutting, that whatever the cutting edge of the science is at the time plays a role. You're right, it's probably just a coincidence because as probably were, I mentioned Democritus and the atomists, that came up with the idea that everything was quantized, that time and space and material itself uh, was quantized into indivisible bits. It turns out that that's the closest cosmology in pre-Socratic philosophy that we have to modern science, but uh, it's certainly a coincidence. So that's a very good point. Okay then, Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to share your thoughts with us. Thank you, Sean, for a very tasty beverage. Thank you all who have listened in. Don't forget to tune in next month, November 4th, 2 p.m. Eastern, for the next edition of Beers with the Global Space Institute of Science. Until then, take care. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye. See you, everyone. There's real poetry in the real world. 
Science is the poetry of reality. We can do science, and with it, we can improve our lives.